I'm Joe Chicarone, and this is Built Not Born, Episode 77, Archive Edition. Today's guest is Sammy Oropesa, or better known as Sammy O. Sammy O and I sat down back in May of 2021. This is one of my favorite interviews. Sammy discusses growing up in Briarcliff, Pennsylvania, the untimely death of his father, his MMA career, and how his greatest defeat in the ring brought about his greatest business opportunity as he pivoted into the Philadelphia real estate market. Sammy tells remarkable stories of courage, grit, and tenacity. Sammy is a microcosm of the great city he lives in. He is tough, energetic, passionate, hardworking, straight up, in your face, just a great guy, stand-up dude. It's a fun conversation. I hope you enjoy. If you like what you hear, make sure you hit that follow button. We have a bunch of thought-provoking, remarkable interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Sammy Oropesa, Sammy O. And remember, life is built, not born. Sammy O, welcome to the show. Right on, Joe. Thank you for having me today. I'm excited to be here. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you or your work, who are you and what do you do? Oh, man, that's a, that's a great question. Who am I? I am a lifelong learner. I am someone who believes that failure is a part of success. I am a, a member of a group who is developing a section of Kensington called Harrogate. And I absolutely love my life. I love waking up every day and the challenges that I face, the problems that I, I have to face every day in the, in the real estate world in the Kensington have been just something that has made my life better. And it just made me a better person. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a town right outside of Southwest Philadelphia called Briarcliff. Absolutely loved it. I grew up on a street where everyone's parent could have slapped me if I was doing something bad. And I could have knocked up at everyone's house during dinner time and sat down and had a plate of dinner. So I love the neighborhood I'm from. So, so take us back to say 10 years old. What was it like around the dinner table for you? Who was there? Describe the scene. Yes. Yeah, so actually at 10 years old, Joe, that was the age when I lost my father, which has been, I would say that I hate to use the word turning point because I guess I was only 10 years old, but really it was a point in my life where I learned how to handle loss. I learned how to have your whole world flipped upside down and build yourself back up. And it's definitely been an event that has shaped me forever, decisions that I've made, the thoughts that I would think. But prior to that, it would have been my whole family. It would have been my mother, my father. I'm the youngest of six kids. Me sitting at the dinner table, people ask me all the time why I eat so fast. I said, I'm the youngest of six. So if I didn't, there, there wouldn't be any food left over if I was still hungry. What was it like being the youngest of six? Oh man, it was awesome. I, I talk to people who are only who, who are only an only child and, and I can't fathom it. I never had my own room. I always had somebody looking out for me. Being that I was there was such an age gap between me and the oldest, I always had a large group of friends in so many different age groups just because if they were friends with my brothers or sisters, they were friends with me. So being the youngest of six, as long as I didn't do something worse than what one of my brothers did, which 
My brother Benny made sure that was very difficult for me to do. I was always in uh, good shape. So, um, and my brother Benny's awesome. I'm just cracking a joke. But yeah, it, it was awesome. I got away with a lot. And my parents reached the point when they're 60 years. If, if you're not bleeding and if you're okay, then you know they're not going to bother with it. Put a Band-Aid on it. You're fine. <laughs> you're uh, fine. You mentioned at 10 years old. Unfortunately, your dad passed away. Could you speak of that? How, how did he die so young? And what type of impact did that have on you? Yes. My father passed away from liver disease, wasn't a drinker or anything, just had a bad liver. And it's interesting, Joe, because it's, I want to, there's so many things to tell you about how it shaped my life. And I, I will say this, the decisions that I have made were based off of me losing my father at a young age. It pushed me to fighting because I developed this belief as a kid that basically said, if I could learn how to fight all my problems, all my fears, everything that I was suffering from the loss of my father, wouldn't really be an issue anymore. And uh, it always drove me to train harder, to work harder. And one of my major goals when I got into fighting was to be able to tell my dad's story on TV before one of my fights. And I got that opportunity, which was one of the highlights of my life when I would look back on it and just setting a goal and wanting to have that moment really set me up for other successes in my life where you can set goals and you can believe in those goals and you don't need to know the how, but you have the will to make it happen. And again, the negative side of it was growing up without my father, I suffered from the feeling of unworthiness my whole life. And I was able to confront that feeling at 30 years old when my daughter was born. So yeah. And you know what? I want to change it for any other, I want to change that experience for the world, but definitely the decisions that I made were decisions based in fear. They were decisions that were based on a, a lower level of thinking because I suffered from the feeling of unworthiness. But where do you think that feeling of unworthiness came from? How that entered your mind? Yes. Yeah, so uh, what I believe it is, and again, before I, I go any further, I just want to credit uh, a friend of mine who basically dealt with something similar than I did. His name's Tony Altamar. He is the owner of Tony Roney's and he's the person that really helped me confront this, this feeling. But I believe a father's job is to, you know, help their son with developing confidence and self-esteem and belief in yourself and not having that at losing that at 10 years old and then having to become a teenager and go to high school and become a young adult and you're basically guided off of your emotions. And when you're a kid and you lose your father, I'd say your emotions become a, a survival mechanism and living your life in a survival mode. I, I think it just creates problems. So I, I really believe that's where it stemmed from. It was that feeling of, I just had to wake up and get through the day and make sure I made it alive at the end of the day. Your dad passes at 10 years old. At what age did you get the idea that you wanted to be a professional fighter? When the first thought entered my head, I was, I was probably in first grade, maybe even kindergarten. And I saw Sean Claude Van Damme's Bloodsport for the first time with my older brother, Benny. Great movie. <laughs> Great movie. Frank Dukes. Frank Dukes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he scammed everybody, huh? That guy, that never happened. Funny, because you, you look at the movie Rocky and you look at Bloodsport and there are two stories that never really happened that inspired me to fight. But I would definitely say that's when the seed got planted, but also at that time I grew up, I was born in 1985. So I 
was a kid in the 90s and Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, Steven Seagal. There were so many action stars, Chuck Norris, and they definitely had a large influence on my life. And growing up watching wrestling, I'll never forget the first time I went to my first wrestling show. And it was the entrance that always excited me, waiting for the fight of the wrestler to come out. And I always wanted to feel that feeling. You could feel the excitement. And again, I'm really guided. I'm a very expressive and abstract person. So I'm, I'm always guided off of the feeling more so than I'm trying to say this without making me sound crazy, but then the actual rational thought, I kind of make my decisions off how I feel. And then I start to think, then I start to put the thought process together. Who was your first fighting coach? What age and who was it? So I was 10 years old and my sister's boyfriend at the time, great guy, really great guy. Love this guy to death. He saw that I was going through a tough time and he brought me to the Upper Darby Boxing Gym where my first boxing lesson was from, his name was Ray Britt. He was in a tough man competition and I appreciate Ray giving me my first boxing lesson and Andy Carr gave me my first kickboxing lesson. And when I look back at the first boxing lesson I got, I was getting a boxing lesson from a guy who was doing tough man competitions and I still remember it. I, I don't remember the teaching. I just remember looking at him and being in such awe of that a big, strong person was standing in front of me. And when he hit the heavy bag, it made a louder sound and shook. And it was the bag move. And when I hit it, it didn't even do anything. And I'll never forget the smell of the gym. I can't believe that the smell, that smell of like sweat that's been sitting in leather and cooking in the sun for way too long always excites me still to this day. That's, that's fantastic. How did you decide to turn pro in boxing? I see you have a 2-0 record in pro boxing. How did you decide to go step in the ring for the first time as a boxer? What led to that? UFC came out in 1993, I believe, was the first UFC. And that was the first time I actually saw an like a Kumite, like a Jean-Claude Van Damme blood sport fight. And before that, it was only boxing. I would say the first thought of my, in my head was wanting to be a boxer. And again, wanting to feel the feeling, wanting to put a check in that experience box. At the end of my mixed martial arts career, my my knees hurt, reached the point where I don't want to wrestle anybody anymore because it's too much work. I said to myself, why not, why not do a professional boxing match? So this way I can not have to die wondering what it would have been like or what it would have felt like. That really pushed me in that direction. How did you first discover grappling? And then how did you decide that that was the way forward in the MMA? What it really came down to was the fact that I'm tall and left-handed. I really think that was <laughs> what made me want to learn so much more about jujitsu, boxing, kickboxing, all of it and blend it all together was when you're a lefty in, the, in fighting, when you're a southpaw, you're actually one of a very few people that every class that I would teach, every class that I would take, if there was another lefty in the class, I would actually be shocked. I'm usually the only lefty. That gives you an advantage, believe it or not, because people are so used to dealing with righties that when they see a lefty, it you have the advantage because you only train with righties and they only train with righties. Being a southpaw, being tall, being lanky. And also too, I would say I am the best athlete that sucks at sports. <laughs> like I Joe, I really am. I can't dribble a basketball. I can't, you give me a wide open shot. It'll be an air ball. You throw a pass to me in football and it'll go right through my hands, but I can run fast. I can jump high. I'm tenacious. 
And yeah, yeah, I'd say not being not being good at sports definitely made me want to take that leap. Where did you start your jujitsu training? I started at it was called Delco BJJ with John Wilson. He was a purple belt when I first went there, and this was back in two thousand and five. And a purple belt back in two thousand and five was a extreme rarity. You can't walk down the street now without bumping into a blue belt or a purple belt. But at that time, it was man, this guy had a purple belt on. I couldn't believe it. You know what I mean? That was like a grandmaster to me. So yeah, that's where I started. How soon after you started training jiu-jitsu did you have your first professional MMA fight? So it was about two and a half years of training jiu-jitsu. And I really understood that if I wanted to step into a cage and fight somebody, I was taking the biggest risk of my life. And when I look at that now, I, I don't see fighting as that big of a risk compared to the risk that I take as an adult and starting a family. But I knew at that moment, the feeling of humiliation, failure would have been such an intense feeling because when you lose and you lost because you got beat up. It is an absolutely demoralizing, embarrassing feeling that I never wanted to feel, but I also wanted to feel the feeling of being in a fight. A lot of psychologists say that the fear of failure and humiliation is greater than the excitement of gain. Would you agree with that? What are your thoughts there? I 100% believe that, Joe, and I'll tell you why. Because I remember wanting to take a fight. And then you have friends. Look, I wasn't even 21 years old. And I remember having a conversation with a friend at that time who I haven't talked to or seen in years, who basically said, was planting the seed of doubt in my head. And it really hit me right then and there that what ifs and what happens when people really live their lives guided by the the fear of failure, as opposed to what you can gain by putting yourself out there. And look, nothing is ever going to be accomplished by not trying something or just thinking about it all day long. So I agree with you 100% on that. And I would say fighting has definitely showed me that. Can you remember that walk from the locker room to the ring for your first professional fight? Joe, I remember it like it was yesterday. <sighs> and when people ask me, what was the best feeling? What was the most exciting feeling? It was the walk to the cage. It always was the walk to the cage. I I'm getting chills just even thinking about it right now. It is one of those feelings that I hope everybody gets a chance to feel. And, and the only reason why I say that is because it is such a feeling of being in the moment. You are so engaged and there's a million things going on around you, but you're not focused in on any of it. And I'd say that was the greatest gift that I got from being a fighter was learning how to live in the moment and understanding that being in the present moment is so important. And the thing that I hate is that for some reason, there needs to be an element of danger for me to almost be fully in the moment. And, and I'm learning as I get older that it doesn't have to be that way, but for a large portion of my life, there needed to be danger for me to focus. In business, sales, life, what a gift the present moment is. Because if you look back and you have dread, you have depression. If you look forward to a future that you have no idea what's going to happen and you're dreaded, that's anxiety. When you live in the present moment, you kill anxiety and you kill depression. Because the present moment, when you're right in front of you, and you said it took walking to your fight, your first professional fight, anxiety and depression leave because you're right there. 
but it, it's so hard to get there. As a human being, it's so hard to live there. To really be present. And it's funny, fighting is the one thing that actually taught me, no, you actually were present because it's so easy to get distracted. We have the fidget spinners. Like uh, we, we're constantly doing something, a restless leg syndrome. We're trying to find a way to occupy ourselves instead of being focused in on the present moment. And and really, when you think about it, the only thing that actually exists is the present moment. So why would you spend any other time being anywhere else? One thing I see when I look at your fight tape and all the uh, highlights online is I'm really amazed watching how multifaceted you were. I see you knocking people out with punches. I see shin kicks. I see arena naked chokes. Uh, I see guillotines. You were such a multifaceted fighter. My question is, who'd you model your fight game after? Man, oh man, who did I model my fight game after? It's funny because I, I would model my fight game after Phil and Rick Migler-Reese because uh, being coached by them and looking up to them, I wanted to emulate them. And then I would constantly visualize fighters who I wanted to move like, I wanted to fight. So for instance, an Anderson Silva, I couldn't not watch what that, that man did. And it was just absolutely amazing. I would say this, I am just an opportunist. I really am. And whenever I see an opportunity present itself that I want, I always take it. And I think that's what always interested me in mixed martial arts was there's lots of ways to win and there are a lots of ways to lose and everyone makes mistakes. And my strategy was always based on what are the mistakes that they make. So I would watch their most recent fight compared to like their oldest fight that they had online and whatever mistakes they made in their oldest fight compared to their most recent fight, I can always guarantee you that they were going to make that mistake when they fought you. And I have a couple in my office. I have pictures of, of not a picture of one of my knockouts and my eyes are closed. And I would always tell people my eyes were closed because I visualized it so many times. I never had my eyes open when the punch landed because my eyes were closed when I was visualizing it. So yeah, yeah. It's just such a powerful thing when you can, you can blend all of it together and really understand those simple concepts that people are going to make mistakes. You mentioned you started in BJJ and Delco, and then you moved on and then found Phil and Rick McLaurice, the owners of Balance Studios. How'd you transition from the Delco BJJ to Balance? John Wilson was a student of Rick and Phil's. So he was an affiliate school. And I remember always hearing about Phil and Rick while I was a student there. And the first time I met Phil Migleris, and I tell him this, I was totally blown away by him. by the way he talked, by the way he carried himself, and how good he was at jujitsu. And the same thing with Rick Migleris. The friendship and the uh, student-coach relationship was just so easy to build. What part of your MMA career did you run into them? Before I even started fighting. As an MMA fighter, how do you know when it's time to evolve your game? I always find the hardest part of any profession is when you're having success, that's also your danger zone. How did you keep evolving your game as you were having success? Joe, so it's funny you say that. And the reason why I, it's I agree and disagree with everything you're saying. I agree in the sense that your goal when you're fighting should be like, hey, I need to get better. Every day of my life, I need to get better. So I constantly need to evolve. And then at the same time, you also need to say to yourself that I am this person and this is the way I train and this is the way I fight. And 
I don't need to change, but I need to get better. So what I mean is I would always watch someone like Eddie Alvarez was a training partner of mine for a big portion of my career. I look up to Eddie. I got to travel to the Philippines with him to in 2019 had the time of my life and he won that fight and it was fantastic. But what I learned from Eddie was he was always the same guy. He never changed what he did when he was fighting. So what I mean is I would spar, let's say an Edson Barbosa, and I would try to be a different person, but really I should have just remained the person that I was because I wasn't going to be fighting him. I was only training with him. It's, I think my problem was I tried to change too much as opposed to just focus in on getting better. When did you know it was time to pivot from the fight game? I realized it was time to pivot from the fight game when my daughter was born. I set two goals when I was a kid and I lost my father. And the first one was to become a professional fighter or to become a fighter. I don't think I was thinking of professional, but to be a fighter. The second one was to be a great father. And I believe you can be a fighter and a great father. What I wanted though, for my kids is I just wanted to show them you can be and do anything you want to be. And I realized it was time. And thank God I was fortunate enough to put myself out there, train at a gym like Balance Studios in Center City, where you build a great network of individuals like yourself, Joe, that you can find a way to provide value or to learn from or be mentored by. And at that time, I was working a job as a maintenance guy at a pharmaceutical site. And I just wanted more. I knew there was more out there. I knew there was more to life. And I was fortunate enough to have people mention real estate to me and compare it to fighting. And that's when it clicked in my brain. I was still fighting at the time, but I was like, hey, maybe when I'm done fighting, I'll find a way to get into real estate in whatever aspect I want to. And that's what I'll do for the rest of my life. Can you remember the moment when you entered the ring as a professional fighter and you walked out in the real estate world, a civilian? Was there a moment? <laughs> you know what? It's, it was a battle in my head because you have to let go. But you, you don't want to, I don't want to sit there and bury my past. I am who I am. My past is my past and my future is my future. So the past doesn't control the future, but it was a very, man, it was a, I'm, I'm trying to look for the word to explain it, but it was a sad moment, but also at the same time, a happy moment because a part of you felt like it was dying, but you, it was being born. You were. I wasn't destroying the energy. I was transferring the energy from one form to another. And I think what the hardest thing to do and the way I, the reason why I felt that, that sadness was you had to stop being an expert and start over as a beginner. And that was the one thing that fighting really taught all of us. You're going to be a beginner. There's always going to be somebody better than you. And really a beginner's mindset is what I think has set me up for success and it sets everybody up for success. What part of your fight game do you try to bring into your real estate sales game? Oh man, I relate everything to fighting, Joe. Everything. So number one, I got to stand out. I can never do what everybody else is doing. And I've always been like that. And some of my earliest memories are not cooperating, not why well, just 
I'm not going to stand in line with everybody else. I'm, I, I always want to stand out. So number one, I got to stand out. Number two, you have to have a good mentor and really not even a good mentor, a great mentor. So in everything we do, we need a coach and we don't know what we don't know. So that's what having a great coach is. And I have uh, what I consider to be the best coach for me and really one of the best people to learn from in, in the Philadelphia real estate world. Th these are the rules that I live by in real estate. And the reason why I live by them is, is because of fighting, but you have to know your market. So when I was fighting, I had to know the promotion that I was in and the people that I would be fighting. And in real estate, I specialize in a market. I'm in Kensington. And what I love about being in Kensington is that nobody else wants to be here. So right off the bat, the competition really isn't there, but I'm learning at such a I'd rather start at rock bottom. You know what I mean? You look at the the neighborhood of Kensington, it is in such desperate need of help. And there there is an element of danger in front of you all day long. So what better neighborhood for me to focus in on every day? And the last thing is I always played to my strengths in fighting and I, I still play to my strengths in real estate. And what I mean by that is I always consider myself a sincere, authentic person. and it's hard to convey your sincerity and authenticity over the phone. I'm a face-to-face -face kind of guy. And that's what I love about being in Kensington. You can get face-to-face -face with people very easily. It's one of those neighborhoods where you know where everybody is all the time. The car they drive, where they park at, everything. They, I'd say that is what I really rolled into real estate from fighting. Who's mentoring you in real estate? If you had to sum up in one word what he or she taught you, what would it be? Patience. What the problem is with me was talking about that feeling of unworthiness. When people would say no or things want to go your way, you start, it must have been how I did this or that I said that, or I came off as, as this instead of that. And really that people are people and you're asking them to make a big decision. And sometimes people don't want to make big decisions at that moment. So learning that no is just no for today. It's not no for tomorrow. It's not no for six months from now. And I'm sitting here in my mentor's office and I'm looking at his crystal ball that I got him. My joke with him is that he sees the future. I'll tell him this happened and he'll say, don't worry, wait, we'll stay on top of it in six months. Let's see what happens. And he's always been right with the advice that he's given me. So I, I gave him that crystal ball as a joke, but having a mentor, having somebody who's been there, done that, seen it, has stepped on the landmines that you're stepping on and understands that this game is, we're running a marathon. No one's running a sprint in real estate. If you want to be successful at it, you have to run a marathon. I would say that's really why having a mentor is so important because when you get impatient, you become irrational and overly emotional. And that's when you make bad decisions. And the same thing with fighting. Patient fighters are usually the fighters, look at Canelo Alvarez, look at a Floyd Mayweather, extremely patient, extremely talented, some of the best in the world. So um, adding that to my personality has just been, it's, it's something I work on every day. I don't want to say I, I, I'm patient, but I'm more patient than what I was the day before. Yeah. There, there's one quote, your life will be uh, the same in five years, except for two things, the books you read and the people you meet. And, yep. Uh, yep. You, know, you work with mentors and you read good books and you make original mistakes, not the mistakes you know you were making 10 years ago. And 
That's phenomenal, Sammy. Your social media feed is really interesting. You, shoot, you do a lot of like live videos, you driving around the street, talking about the real estate market, what you're doing. One of them, you mentioned your preference in real estate to work for the seller, not just, not the buyer. Why is that? In my opinion, long-term, long-term su- success is working for the seller in real estate. And to me, that's been the strategy that I follow and that I focus in on. It's definitely a a longer process in developing relationships because you can call anybody you want and say, hey, I want to buy this piece of real estate. Can you help me? But at the end of the day, a buyer can walk away. A seller has to sign a contract for you to sell their property. So in my opinion, working for the seller is the best way to develop uh, long-term success. And also too, you have what people want. So what I've realized in real estate, and again, this has helped me so much. And this is a black belt from balance. Carl Wright has helped me with negotiating and having that negotiation skills because I have a saying, I don't sell your house or your property. The MLS, uh, the multiple listing service sells it. All I do for you is negotiate. And negotiating is a skill that is so overlooked in real estate and having good mentors to really show me how to do it the right way and how to read people and using the correct words to get the result that you want. It's, it has to be so calculated. That's really why people come up to you and they're like, what do you got? And you're like, uh, yeah, I got something really nice right here. You want to say it? And of course they want to say it. So it's not fun when you're on the, when the shoe's on the other foot. Say someone wanted to get into real estate, maybe someone right out of high school or college, what would you tell them to consider? Any best practices, any words of wisdom? I would tell them to rent, to read Spin Selling by Neil Rackham. And if you read that book, and if that's your personality, and if that's the way you actually feel, then go for it. If not, I, I would maybe look into selling something that is a, a faster sale. So Spin Selling by Neil Rackham was the first book that I read when someone told me to get into real estate, read Spin Selling by Neil Rackham. And what I learned by it is I'm not someone who is oh, you want to buy this house? Let me sell you this house. This is the nicest house. You got to put an offer in today, like a closing technique, because what they learned was the people that are making the highest dollar sales are not closers per se. They are people who develop long-term relationships and friendships with people and build trust with them. And the people who are buying it will only buy it from someone that they have that feeling of friendship and trust from. I believe my My desire to really want to develop relationships is the reason why I wanted to get into real estate. And if you are a fly-by-the-night kind of guy or latest and greatest, and that type of stuff bores you, it's really not for you. You mentioned reading. How important is reading to staying on top of your game in the real estate world? You have to read every day. If you're not reading every day, you're losing. Every morning, I read the newsletters. Every real estate newsletter, I'm reading the Inquirer. I'm reading the Philadelphia Business Journal. And look, At the end of the day, it's not even that, oh, I'm smarter now, so I'm more valuable, but you're going to run into those times where you can have conversations with people where now something that they would like to know. And what I learned is when you're able to give someone a piece of information that they did not know, it instantly helps you. They want to have someone to work with that they enjoy being around and enjoy talking to, but also who knows what they're talking about. If you are not reading, about the market or improving yourself, you're going to have a lot harder time, way harder time. What's the last book you read that either influenced you or changed your mind? 
the last book I read that influenced me or changed my mind? Oh, man. I'm thinking of changed my mind because every book I've read influenced me. I would have to say Chris Voss never split the difference. Mm-hmm. Are you aware of that book? The FBI Negotiator, right? Chris yeah. Oh, yeah. Crazy good book. Absolutely. What was your takeaway from that? I didn't get a chance to talk about my mom. So when I, I lost, my dad was the sole provider for my family. And when he passed, my mother had to step up and she worked jobs, but she didn't have a career. Her career was to be a mother and to take care of the family. So one thing I learned from my mother that I always thought was the most useless thing was empathy. And I thought what made me weak was my empathy, was my ability to relate to people. But really the what changed my mind with Chris Voss was, oh my gosh, like empathy is such a weapon to have when negotiating anything, because being able to understand where someone else is coming from and being able to put yourself in their shoes and knowing what you would want if you were in their shoes totally changed my outlook on life. It's funny that we're talking about this because I picture the yellow, I pictured that yellow and red book pretty often. And I have it at my bookshelf in my house and I always get mad at myself. And this morning I wanted to look at something and I'm like, I need to keep this book in the office because this is when I need to reference it. And I'm thinking about going back and rereading it this week. So I'm glad we're talking about it. Thanks for sharing that. Now, when you hear pro boxing, MMA, jujitsu, Philly, you're not thinking empathy, but that word is such a game changer. You think it's like soft and makes you weak, but it actually makes you as strong as possible. And once you figure that out, your life changes. Shifting gears here a bit. What does the first 60 minutes of your day look like? The first 60 minutes of my day are, I like to laugh when I wake up and I like to be, if I laugh, I'm, I know I'm setting the tone for the day because I like to enjoy myself. I like to have fun. So I'll start off every morning. I make a couple, well, actually I chug a bottle of water and then I make my coffee. And as I sit and I wait for my coffee to brew, What's your coffee? I sit down. What's your go-to coffee? Uh, we, we have the K-Cups. Uh, okay. We have Dunkin' Donuts. Whatever we get. But <laughs> if, if in a perfect world, it's a hazelnut coffee. I don't know why. Hazelnut coffee with oat milk and I'm good. So I'll sit there and I have been on the biggest Joe Dispenza kick. I get on to certain speakers or certain subjects. And right now, I can't stop listening to Joe Dispenza. And this morning was, I listened to a Joe Dispenza talk as I sat there and sipped on my coffee and thought about what I wanted to do for the day. And as ideas come to me, I write them down. So every morning I'm writing, whether it's an empowering message or what I need to do for the day, I set my goals for the day. And then I write down my major goals, big goals that I want to hit. Then I go upstairs, I get my shower I pump myself up and I go into the office or I go right to an appointment, whatever I have planned for that day. And really the toughest part of my job is the first 60 minutes, but also what am I doing at the end of the day? And the the morning is just as important as the nighttime because I I tell my fiance Amanda all the time is I sell all day long, but people only buy at nighttime. So my nights how I strategically and where I put myself every night is so important. Trying to find that work family balance is always difficult, especially in sales. And really 
the people that are getting the most opportunities to sell real estate and to develop the best relationships are the ones that are able to get out and get around people. And that always happens when you should be sitting at the dinner table or after seven o'clock. But that's the, uh, the balance that I'm always trying to work out. The mornings are always easy. The nighttimes, they become uh, much more difficult. You hear that from prime ministers to CEOs to professional athletes. The hardest thing is to get the family life right. Because like, like you said, like with sales, where people are working during the day and they want to look at houses at night, on the weekend, that is so hard. What do you do when you're playing with your, your child and it's 7.30 at night and the phone rings and you're sitting there playing blocks or your Legos? How do you handle that? This is why having a mentor is so important. What What is the most difficult thing to do, I think, in real estate in the beginning is understanding who's real and who's fake. Who's here because they, they see the value in you and who is here that is just going to waste your time. So what I've really noticed is I will reserve those times for those people who I believe are the ones that are... And, and again, everybody's important. I, I totally get that. But you don't get paid by the hour. There's no guarantees in in real estate. Just like running your own business, there's no guarantees. I really look for who am I going to do it for? Not just am I going to do it, but I have a small select group of clients that whenever they call me, I'm there. I'm answering the phone or I'm going somewhere. And everyone else, really, there's a process where it can wait. When you are at your best, what are you doing? Oh man, when I am at my best, I am face to face. I am developing a friendship, trust, and I am free to create. There is no schedule. It's funny how I, I really feel like I thrive with it's not even with no structure. It's just I, I know this part of the day I'm gonna be focused in on this. Sometimes it goes a little bit shorter, sometimes it goes a little bit longer. But when I'm free to be creative. When I'm free to really step inside myself and execute on ideas that inspire me, that's really when I feel like I'm the best. And I would say organizing the neighborhood cleanups has been the best opportunity. And I'll tell you why. When I went to Balance Studios, I didn't care if Joe Chickarone had a million followers on his podcast or zero followers, or even did a podcast. I liked people for people. I like talking to you because of you. And I really think that is my gift. When I'm able to be sincere and sit down and have people know there's no motives here, this is just who I am, is really when I'm at my best. And it's funny how when I got into real estate and I'm working to develop business and I was like, who do I already know? I already knew a bunch of people because it wasn't that I didn't care about what they did. It's that I only really talked to you because you were this person that trained with me and we had a great friendship because we trained together. So really, that's when I do believe I'm at my best. I can personally vouch for that because I remember the times when you're training and you're hitting the pads at the back of balance. And then you're always taking time to say hello. You're joking with us after training. You were very approachable. But you live what you speak. So that's really impressive. Yeah. How about this? What failure set you up for future success? Do you have a favorite failure looking back? Of course. Tell us about it. Losing my last MMA fight was one of the 
most difficult experiences I have ever faced in my whole entire life. Uh, I believe that was the chance for me to get into the UFC. I lost a close decision and I definitely lost the fight. I'm not saying, oh, that could have went either way. No, I definitely lost the fight. I'll always admit when I win and when I lose. And I remember sitting in my basement for a week straight in this old wooden chair that I had down there and crying. I remember sitting there and crying and not knowing what to do where to go, how to do it, really the feeling of feeling so lost in life. I would say that disgust that I felt with myself was really the driving force behind getting up and having that pain already inside of me. Like I'm, I'm already in pain. What's the worst that's going to happen now? You're already upset. You're already hurt. What are you going to do about it now? And I think, what do they say? Comfort leads to casualty. It was being so uncomfortable that I just really went big. And I really went after, I started on the commercial real estate side and I went after the biggest firm in Philadelphia with Rittenhouse. First, I started with Rittenhouse Capital Advisors and then I moved over to the sales side, Rittenhouse Realty Advisors. And that was such a big win for me getting hired by them. And I only believe that reason why I was able to have that victory was I had such a crushing defeat where I just felt like my dreams were shattered right in front of me. And I had to pick up the pieces. And I really do believe that the big failures, the big letdowns always set up the big, the biggest opportunities and the biggest successes in your life. What is your personal definition of success? Uh, that's my favorite question. So Earl Nightingale's definition of success is my definition. The progressive realization of a worthy ideal. I would not change one word of that. The person who is doing what they want to do because they want to do it is a success in my book. And always remember that when you look at the biggest accomplishments, so the Wright brothers didn't become successful when they were the first in flight, they were successful the moment they decided they were going to be the first in flight. And that's the way I really look at it because the only way you can live your dreams is by chasing your dreams and by going after your dreams. And really the successful people in the world, doesn't matter your bank account, doesn't matter any of that type of stuff. It matters, are you doing what you wanna be doing because it's what you wanna do? It starts with a decision, decision followed by action. Like say somebody wants to lose weight, there's 4,000 diet books out there. You could literally close your eyes and grab any book. If you follow that book, you decide you want to lose weight and you grab a book, you're going to lose weight if you follow that plan. Or if you want to get yourself out of debt, there's a million books how to get out of debt. You grab one of them, decide and follow and act. And yeah, it, Joe, let, let me ask you this. How many times people see you're, you're an instructor of jujitsu, right? They come mm -hmm. up to you and they go, I've been thinking about doing that for the past five years, or I've been thinking about taking a class. Well, how long? Oh, for a couple of years now, it's, well, why haven't you? Why do you? Why are you sitting here and just thinking about it? There's, there's. I live in a community, and there's a lot of dads with young kids, and there's some dads that come up to me for three straight years, and they're bigger, stronger, younger, probably better looking, and they've been talking about jujitsu for four years and never stepped foot in the dojo. And it's just like you decide yeah. and you go. You could talk about it all you want. It's that decision to step on. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. How about what values do you try to pass on to your kids? I live my life by five core values. And these were the five core values that were the, were the values of the trade school that I went into. When I graduated from high school, I went to the Williamson, it's called the Williamson College of Mechanical Trades. 
And their five core values are faith, integrity, diligence, excellence, and service. And I really believe you need to lead with faith. You're never going to have a guarantee in anything in life. So you need faith. Your integrity is who are you when no one's looking? And it's really, who are you? You have to know who you are. You have to be diligent in every everything you do. You have to be a hard worker. If you're not a hard worker, I don't know why you're doing what you're doing. Excellence, because there's no such thing as perfection, but you should be committed to becoming better every day of your life. And like you start with faith, always end with service. You always have to give back. If you're not giving something back, whether it's your time, whether it's money that you earned that is going to go to a good cause or just talking to somebody. If you're not willing to serve, I don't know why you're doing what you're doing either because the way I see it is to serve is to rule. The best service I offer, the better I'm doing. And really the people who are living the best lives are serving the most people. What's the most exciting project you're working on right now? The most exciting project I'm working on right now is in in real estate development, it's assemblage. So you have to assemble the parcels first and it's like completing a puzzle. So I have three of those parcels under agreement and really it's keeping the seller of it on the hook until we can close. So I would say finding the last pieces of, and trust me, there's there are, it's like finishing a jigsaw puzzle and there's one piece missing And you have to go and find that last piece. That is the most exciting thing to me. And it's funny, the harder I try to find the piece, the harder it is to find it. But the moment I let go and start to just enjoy the process of doing what I'm doing is when the pieces start to come to me. And one happened the other day where part of this is getting someone to want to talk to you. A lot of people do not want to talk to you. And the other day, just walking down the street gave me the opportunity to where somebody wanted to talk to me that has been avoiding me for years. So grabbing those last pieces, that is the most exciting part of my day because once I get them, I don't really celebrate, but I do celebrate those victories. They're my favorite victories to celebrate. If you could get a billboard on 95 that the whole city would drive by, what would be the quote or motto you'd put on that billboard? All right. So... It would be sell with Sammy O. And the reason why it would be why it would be sell with Sammy O, and I know it sounds cheesy, right? Is my dad sold cars. I always looked up to my father, always have, always will. And my dad was Tommy O. And everyone knew him as Tommy O. Everyone bought a car from him or a van or a truck. And I have one of his business cards, his original business card with you know his logo on it. And it even has his handwriting on it. And uh, when I was trying to break into the real estate world, a friend of mine was cleaning out his uncle's house and found it. So it's the only thing of him I own. And I just love the nickname Sammy O. I love that I sell real estate. And uh, I have to serve myself too. So that's what I would want on the, uh, on the 95 billboard. If you could go back, and talk to those people around that dinner table at 10 years old, what would you want to tell them? Man, wow, what a great question, Joe. Believe. It's always the first word that comes to my head when people ask me that question. It's just believe in yourself, 
believe in the possibilities, believe in you can do it. Gosh, I guess that would just be it just to, to believe in yourself. Because I think when, when anyone is faced with hardship and, and difficulties, and we all will be in our lifetime at some point, and if you made it this far without really being having your world flipped upside down, it actually scares me because having my world flipped upside down at such a young age was such a advantage to me today. I tell people all the time, I've never had a bad day because for something to qualify as a bad day, it really has to be a bad day. Just to really, just to believe, always believe, man, always believe it's possible. I think we, we allow the past, we allow our, our emotions and our past experiences to really dictate our future. And I see it too many times with too many talented people. And you see the problems, especially the problems Philadelphia is facing right now with drug addiction and violent crime and the murders are sky high right now. And I, I think it's because people really can't see the possibility of life being better. Why would you do something if you actually believe that your life was was worth something more than what you believe it is. That's great. Last question. Five years from now, what do you want to be doing? What do you want to be? Five years from now. And oh man, can I say it? I guess I'm just going to say it. So five years from now, I, I would like to have a, a larger real estate portfolio. I would love to have a team of real estate agents working underneath me. and. I guess really the last thing is I would like to, and this has been a goal of mine for since I can remember, I want to find a way to set up, whether it's a foundation, an organization, whatever you want to call it, to help fatherless boys in the city of Philadelphia. Because to me, the biggest problem I see every day are when you look at the, the violent crime that happens in Philadelphia, it's not really happening by girls. It's happening by boys and being a professional fighter and getting into the real estate world. And what really helped me get into the real estate world was understanding and controlling my emotions and being able to see the big picture. There's too many children growing up in the city of Philadelphia that do not have the opportunities to really become an adult, to really become a man and what they see every day is violence, drugs. And it's something that, that tears at me every day working in Kensington. I don't think people see what I see every day. And it's very difficult to bring attention to it because you basically have to degrade somebody in order to get attention for it. It's such a difficult thing to do because you have to display the hardships that somebody's going through. So I would say that would be probably my biggest goal. And I see a future in politics for that reason. But at the same time too, I love doing what I'm doing and I love running my business. And if I were to dive into that world, it would be, how can I run my business? But at the same time too, I'd say that's where the conflict in my brain happens, where it's you want to you want to run a business but at the same time you want to make the social impact that you want to make so trying to blend the two together is the battle that I'm facing so maybe in 5 years I'll have it figured out we'll see. you jump into any political race one you got my vote and two uh, to summarize your last three answers see the big picture give back and believe absolutely wow i think that's about as good a spot to end as any samio one, it's been a pleasure. But two, if people are looking for you online, how can they find you? 
Yeah. So if you social media, go with Instagram, it's sell underscore with underscore Sammy underscore O. Sell with Sammy L. And then Facebook, Sam Warpiza. I think it's Sam Warpiza Real Estate Sales is my my Facebook page. And Sam Warpiza at gmail.com. If you have any questions, send me an email. Sammy O, thank you for joining us. It was an awesome hour. Really appreciate it. And I wish you nothing but continued success. Thank you for your time. John, Joe, thank you so much, man. Hey, it's Joe Chicarone. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you could, please leave us a five-star review. It goes a long way with connecting the podcast with more listeners. So if you could, I would really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Talk soon.